Greetings and welcome to Dead for Filth. I'm your host, Michael Verratti, and this is the podcast for all things queer horror and beyond. They say it's important to celebrate the things that you love, and as longtime listeners of the show know, there are a few things I love more than the movie Showgirls. As such, I'm happy to welcome today's guest, who assured her place in cult cinema history by portraying Penny, aka Hope, in the Paul Verhoeven classic. Beyond her role in this landmark motion picture, she has appeared in films like David Lynch's Mulholland Drive, Candyman 3, and the recent horror flick Spreading Darkness. As a filmmaker, she's crafted her own celebrated works like Trasharella, Astrid's Self-Portrait, and Showgirls 2, Pennies from Heaven. She's an actor, writer, director, dear friend, and goddess. Please welcome Rena Riffle. Oh, that's so sweet. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for being here today. I was listening to all that. I was like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, they're your accomplishments. I love that. Well, thank you for for saying everything that you just did. That was really nice. Well, I'm so excited to have you on the show today because uh, many guests in the past have, have referenced their love of Showgirls and its place in the cult canon, but also... Uh, you know, I think it's important for listeners to know that you have uh, really laid claim as a filmmaker and your work. Uh, when Peter Stickles was on, we talked about um, just sort of like the the really interesting experimental routes that you take with your filmmaking. And I'm excited to talk to you about that. Oh, good. Thank you. Yes. Uh, so now that we're here and settled in, I might as well kick this show off the same way I start every show with the same first question I ask every guest. And uh, it's simply this. Why horror? And you can interpret that however you want. Like, why do you think horror connects with people? Why do you connect with horror? Uh, what's the draw? However you choose to answer, but why horror? Well, yeah, I was trying to think of um, what my answer might be. <laughs> when you ask that, I, I'm thinking of Rosemary's Baby. And I love horror that is more just that mood that is disturbing mm -hmm. and you know the way that film was made and that whole mood and you just feel the impending doom of you know something's going to happen something's not right right and so um watching movies like that it, it well it's exciting but there's something about it that's kind of comforting <laughs> in a way when i think about it you know Cause like I'll I'll watch horror movies with my little brother. He loves horror movies, but he likes the type that don't have a lot of the like blood and and you know stabbing and right. killing and stuff. But just that that eerie feeling. Like what was that movie? Um, the little girl who lives down, down the, the lane. lane. Yeah, yeah. Like that. We used to like to watch that movie. Kind of you know, over and over. Mm -hmm. And it just has that weird vibe about it, that that moodiness. So, so. atmosphere really affects you. Yeah, atmosphere. And then um, with Astrid's self-portrait, I haven't, you know, watched that my own film in a long time because after I finish making a movie, I finally just, like, let it go. Right. But um, I watched a trailer that I had made Um just like a couple days ago and for Astrid and I was kind of I surprised myself at how kind of horror-ish and like dark and with that kind of mood the atmosphere right um the suspense that that trailer turned out to be I I, I don't know why I just for some reason went in that direction to bring it more in that direction well that that's Astrid interesting film. 
Because I, I attended the screening of Astrid's self-portrait that you did when uh, you did it in conjunction with Etheria. Mm-hmm. And uh, it very much is a mood piece, I think. I, I think that that movie is very steeped in atmosphere. Uh, and knowing now when you describe what your interest in horror is, is that kind of impending dread. Mm-hmm. I can see it in that movie. Uh, yeah. uh, for listeners who are, aren't familiar, would you describe a little bit about what the film is about? Yeah, um, it has a lot of different subplots going on, really, you know, but um, let's see, the character of Astrid, basically, it's a film made by Astrid, right? and it is her own self-portrait, and she's filming herself, which she wants to make an art film, because she was in Hollywood, and she can't, she doesn't like Hollywood anymore, the way they work and she had a boss and she was a film critic but something was going on where and i don't reveal all the answers but something was going on where she was getting kind of intimidated and paid off and things like that that she didn't like to write a dishonest review for the holly big hollywood movies so she attempts to make her avant-garde art film but all these things get revealed and She's had seven husbands, and they've all died except for one. Right. So she's been widowed six times, and it's kind of it's a found footage film as well. And there's someone that comes on during the film and explains things because he found her footage, and then re-edited her footage, and she's the artist, which you know is kind of. A horrific and cruel thing to do right <laughs> you know but then he was proud of it because he just turned it into his own movie um so yeah it just and then it reveals her life and things go along and it just gets darker and darker what i think is particularly interesting and uh fascinating about astrid's self-portrait is it's about someone who worked within the hollywood system and mm-hmm. in this disillusioned way goes out to make an art film mm-hmm. And it could, in a, like, for viewers, it could parallel a lot of your own work. You have worked on major motion pictures. Mm-hmm. And even though Astrid is about a woman making an art film, it is in of itself an art film. Because yeah. there are all these layers. There are the found footage elements. There are the things that we see and the things that aren't answered. And a lot of experimental ideas. Uh, was that something that you had in mind when you created this character? Like, were you feeling disillusioned with Hollywood when you created Astrid? Well, without um, actually being aware of that, but yes, um, I'm sure I was because it was at that point that I actually left L.A. and I gave up my wonderful apartment in West Hollywood. But now I regret (laughs) doing that. But at the time, it's like, I'm done with Hollywood. And, you know, I I moved up to Pismo Beach where I I shot the movie, which had, you know, beautiful locations up there. But um, yeah, I was just like, I'm just going to focus on being a filmmaker. I don't want to even audition anymore for these parts they're sending me out for. It was just so, I was just, yeah, disillusioned. I mean, I'd been in the business, you know, and doing a lot of great films and great work in, I mean, in their good movies that I was in. But, um, you know, I've auditioned so many, you know, thousands and thousands of times. And yeah, I was just, I was just sick of it. And 
I didn't like what was going on. And um, yeah, I just wanted to make my own movies because it's just more fun and more fulfilling. So yeah, I was that that was that was my mindset at that time. What's interesting, I mean, obviously in the case of Astrid in the film, it's uh, very to a heightened and almost detrimental degree to the character. Uh, but it is about someone who's trying to take their life back. And yeah. so by leaving Hollywood and making this movie on your own. And what I think is interesting, I remember when you were making this film, I had come to visit you uh, at, uh, where you were living at the time and you showed me a clip that you had made in Pismo Beach. And you told me that you were the only person there that day. You set the camera up, turned it on, and then walked around and shot yourself. Yeah. And that's wild because it's a beautiful sequence. So you not only, you know, broke from Hollywood, you broke from convention. Oh, yeah. Yeah, a lot of that film, um, I don't know what the percentage of it would be, but maybe 75%. Um, yeah, I would, I set up the camera, I get the focus mm -hmm. by different ways I've figured out how to do that. And then, and then I sit down in front of the camera and, and then film my, you know, performance, my monologue, my scene, whatever. And, um, but yeah, I love, I love working like that actually. Right. It, it's, it, it's fun. It's, um, you know, freeing just to, because before that, I mean, not to go into showgirls too yet, but, um, it was kind of my own recovery kind of, um, project because when I did showgirls too, and, you know, Peter knows we were there and, I, I had, I think, like a hundred actors that came on that set and like a huge, it was just like this huge production. Right. Huge. And most of it because, you know, it was basically a no budget movie. I was organizing everything every day and then, you know, grabbing everything, putting everything together, going to some location, hoping everyone can still show up, you know? Right. So I was like, this Astrid film... I just want to do it just basically by myself, except for I had like a few other characters, you know, but right. yeah. And it was just because I wanted to do completely the opposite of the showgirls too, because that was so stressful. It was, I kind of took on more than I bargained for at the time with that film. Well, as we know, movies are controlled chaos in yes, every way, yeah. like on every level. And yeah. I'm wondering Obviously, there are challenges with making a movie where you have so many people on set. But I imagine there are challenges when you are a crew of one. Uh, what was yeah. what was the time frame like making Astrid when you were doing pretty much everything yourself? How long did it take you to complete that film? Um, let's see. I finished it pretty quickly, and I would I would film. Um, like one or two days a week. And I think I completed the filming of it. I mean, I would take like a week off, you know, I, the way I did Showgirls 2. Right. It was that kind of scheduling. I think I filmed it over maybe like a two or three month period, actually. And, um, and you know, and I kept adding scenes as well. Right. I, I went into that whole mindset. <laughs> And then I, I shot like even more scenes and then I later was like, wait, this, I, I got to just get rid of that. But yeah. 
Well, I, I like that we actually fast started by fast forwarding to Astrid, which is your most recent feature that you directed, because the discussion of someone who has been on this journey through Hollywood and decided to take matters into their own hands, as we've pointed out, sort of parallels your own journey. And uh, with that in mind, let's backtrack. When did you first realize that you were interested in films? Were, when you were growing up, did you always want to act or be part of movies? Yeah, I did. And I mean, looking back, um, I, I think my first influence, I mean, this is kind of funny, I think that um, was Gilligan's Island. Really? And um, yeah, and I wanted to be, I wanted to be Ginger. Like, the movie star. Yeah, I wanted to be the movie star. And I was in love with Gilligan. <laughs> <laughs> That's a type. Okay. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I just, oh my gosh. I was, yeah, so in love with him. And I watched every episode. And um, being from the small town up there, not even Pismo, but this town of Tascadero, mm -hmm. we, we didn't even have cable. So um, I was really, you know, limited to like one channel. And, um, so yeah, that, you know, at that time, I guess, you know, maybe I was five years old or so, but, um, yeah. And, and I knew that I wanted to be an actress at, at that age when I was five. So at what point did you go from watching Ginger and saying, Hey, the movie star life is for me <laughs> to actually practically putting it into effect? When did you make the move to become an actor? Well, let's see. Um, in, I was always performing, and I was, you know, like one of those little girls in ballet class and do the recital, and then mm -hmm. I did um, this one production up there of The King and I when I was, you know, a kid. So I was, you know, active in that way. But um, and then and then I auditioned for um, in high school. I kind of forgot about this, but, um, at lunchtime they would put on like a soap opera, you know, <laughs> what is going on at your school? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, um, so my friend wrote this script and wow, she was like such a great writer, but yeah, very melodramatic. And, um, and so I auditioned for it, even though I was in the drama, you know, acting class, but, and so I got the lead and, and it was just this, yeah, a really melodramatic kind of part. And, um, but I felt, it's funny, but I felt kind of confident with my ability to act. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, also, I don't know if when you were a kid, you probably, you know, when we used to play with our friends and it was kind of like, um, I guess like the role play of, you know, whatever. We, we think of these ideas, um, and we'd have like a set of like 10 different scenarios and what our characters were. Like one was, um, I think we called ourselves the rich ladies and we'd like put our makeup on and dress up in our, in my friend's mom's, you know, fancy clothes and like act like we're all, you know, sophisticated. But this is when we were like, you know, seven years old. Right. But that was, then again, it's the same principle as improv, right? You're basically that we're doing now. <laughs> yeah, you're describing an acting class, but yeah, with, we didn't know what we were doing. Yeah. We were just playing. 
Yeah, and then also with that same friend, I mean, this is all the childhood stuff of the development that I'm talking about, but um, we were so into Barbie dolls, too, and, like, we had these whole families, uh, this, you know, whole neighborhood, basically, of Barbie dolls, and and that was an ongoing story as well, like, in, improvised but I mean, we were just very serious about it. And we'd remember, you know, where we left off last time and the neighbor over here is mad at their person. And, you know, it was like, um, what was that? Not Sex in the City, but that other one, that other show. Um, I'm not sure. Yeah, uh, anyway. But you, um, what's interesting is, so you were finding ways to hone performance early on just through make-believe, but yeah. it also sounds like you were interested in storytelling from early on. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and I, I do use that now. Like when I write scripts, I just go right into that kind of flow of an improv. So it's interesting because you could then draw a, co a connection to the scripts you write all the way back to playing Barbies. Yes, I, I really can. I kind <laughs> of love that. Thanks to Barbies. <laughs> Thanks to my Barbie dolls. Yeah, and Ken, you know. I Ken mean, Ken was just always kind of along for the ride, let's be honest. <laughs> yeah. uh, and when did you move to L Was your first move to L.A. to become a professional actor? Is that is that when you made that a serious decision? Yeah. It, yeah, I, know, I was 18. And um, so I was still stuck in a Tascadero <laughs> and I was literally crying and my mom was doing my hair one morning. She's like, why are you crying? And I was like, I don't want to live here anymore. <laughs> and I had these tears coming down and I was like, I want to be an actress. I want to I be a dancer. I, I, I was in this dance troupe that would perform at the farmer's market up there. Oh, very prestigious, the <laughs> yes. farmer's market. Yes, <laughs> like they'd clear out all the people and we'd get in the middle and do our big dance number. But um, yeah, so, you know, and then I, for some reason, I don't know, I think it was like my influences that I had back then, but I, but I wanted to be a model, <laughs> you know, like I, I, I loved still photography, which I still do. It's like something that I really just enjoy making pictures for some reason. It's so interesting because when you look at your resume, you actually have so many diverse skills that I think that people who maybe only know you for showgirls, which we'll talk about in a bit, uh, maybe don't realize because you are a photographer, you are a writer, director, you compose music. Um, and it's so interesting because you mentioned early influences you wanted to be a model, but then you look at your work now and it seems like you really diversified your influences as you grew as an artist because you seem to have a very strong attraction to experimental film. And, yeah. uh, and, I guess, for lack of a better term, like offbeat art. Do you remember maybe the first piece of art that wasn't conventional or mainstream that attracted you and you thought to yourself, aha, this is what yes. I want to do? Yeah. And um, I mean, okay, before I say that one, first off, and I thought about this uh, just yesterday, I was really influenced by Madonna, you know, mm -hmm. and everything, you know, she was very rebellious. And I think that's also why a lot of 
my career and the way I was acting before, it was just like, she was my idol because she, you know, had that, that right. spirit about her and, and her art in the way she did her photos and everything. But, um, but yeah, so when I first saw, um, trash actually, the that, Andy Warhol, Paul Morrissey film. Yeah, yeah. That really just, I thought it was the greatest thing I've ever seen in my life. And I just really like went further and further into, um, into that world of filmmaking and yeah. And at that time I, I actually got to work with, um, Hollywood lawn as well. I didn't know you worked with Hollywood lawn. What project was yeah, that? Yeah. Um, it's this movie that, oh my gosh, it's really great. It's this amazing movie. We shot it on film and they still haven't completed it all these like 20 years or more, whatever it's been later but it's called um the original title is citizens of perpetual indulgence interesting and it has joe delisandre in it as well but it has like a lot of the warhol like you know other actors yeah you're it. talking about warhol superstars and you got to be yeah. in a film with them yeah so yeah. what was that experience like that that was amazing because um yeah just my friend um we were making this other film and he was, he showed, he said, you got to watch this movie trash. And that's what we're going to make the film like. And it's not this one I just told you about. This right. is a different one. Um, it's called between Christmas and new year's. And it was also, we shot it on film and I was one of the producers. I helped, you know, get the film made. And um, so we're, we were shooting that a lot of it at this um, apartment building called the Ravenswood. Mm -hmm. And, um, that's and I met Holly there as well because she was friends with my friend and my friend um, Mac James and David North. But um, so Mac, he actually worked as an artist. He wasn't an actor. He was a, an artist with Warhol just at the factory, you know. So mm -hmm. they they knew all those those people and Joe Delisandro. So they have they helped put together that. Uh, the other project as well but they lived in may west's apartment there oh i love the hollywood connection yeah and um you know and, and david he had done a lot of the um like e-entertainment stories where they talk about you know may west and her ghost and they had their seances to bring her back and he had all of her furniture do you believe that that place was haunted by may west um i i would I wanted to think that yes, it was. <laughs> and when I was when I was in there, because I was there a lot, and um, I would always feel like May really likes me, and David would say, "Oh, she loves you." <laughs> Officially <laughs> so, approved by May West's ghost. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, it was really a fun time, and that was in, um, I guess, well, just like right after Showgirls, actually, like late. Like 97, 98, something like that. So before we leap into Showgirls, you moved to L.A. Uh, you looking to become possibly a model, possibly an actress. Yeah. Uh, what was the first big gig that you landed? Hmm. Okay, well, I, it's all kind of confusing, but I, um, I started taking acting class. I wanted to be a dancer. I... I got, oh, and this relates to showgirls actually, but um, 
I got a scholar, a dance scholarship, and I would, my dance teacher, one of the teachers, was actually Marguerite Derricks, who you know is the choreographer for Showgirls, Showgirls yeah. and um. So I and I was auditioning for dance parts. Um, I kind of had a, a dance agent because I was going out on these really good dance auditions. But um, and then I got with elite models, so I started modeling with mm-hmm. them. And um, and then I I got an uh, acting agent, and I remember I was like, I don't really want to be an actor right now because I wanted to work on my um, modeling and more so my dancing but um, I ended up getting a part oh, in this movie I mean it's not really that bad of a movie but, <laughs> but, but I don't know it's kind of it's kind of embarrassing but um, it's called Satan's Princess oh and, tell me about that don't watch it <laughs> you know when I um, <clears throat> yeah so they did. They did the um, Taft Hartley, uh, you know, for me. So I got to be SAG, which back then it was really hard to become SAG. It wasn't. It's a lot easier now. No, yeah. Um, so that was great, and it's with uh, Robert Forster and Liddy Denier, I think her name. So is... the first movie you ever got cast in, you were with Robert Forrester. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, yeah, and it was back in the day. I mean, it's kind of cool. It was the oh, Bert I. Gordon, who's a cult. Yeah, director. he made a lot of drive-in uh, classic horror movies. Yeah, yeah. so um, that was his last film that he made, and it was also a film for what doesn't exist anymore, but Laura Mar pictures and that's down in Culver City. Yeah, I remember Laura Mar. I used to see them in front of the VHS. Oh yeah. Tapes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So it's just like so vintage and this was I think in 89. Look, Rena, I mean, I think that this is actually a really <laughs> cool story. You were in the last film of Bert I. Gordon, who, like, made an impact in the drive-in era. Yeah. Listeners of Dead for Filth are sure going to love that. And with yeah. Robert Forrester. Yeah. And, uh, and Bert. Okay, so I go in there to the side. My, it was my first audition ever. 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 And ever. you land the gig. Yeah. That's actually kind of a Hollywood success story in of itself. Yeah. Because that almost never happens. Oh, yeah. I mean, it was kind of uh, amazing. And, um... So, yeah, I go in there and, okay, I'm kind of bragging right now. I'm sorry. Yeah, but... that's, what, that's what we have you on the show for, brag. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So, and I do my death scene and I'm like screaming, <laughs> like crying <laughs> from my big death scene in the audition. And then um, Bert calls my agent and he goes, she's the best damn actress to walk through my door in years. She's got the part. So I was like, wow. Okay, anyway, that's my my bragging story. <laughs> I mean, I, I think that's a fair, you know, you go in, you scream, you cry, you get a gig <laughs> with a really well-known drive-in director. That's not a not a bad scene. Uh, and so from that point, you're off. You're like on, on, the, on the run. Well, kind of, but then I've had a lot of setbacks. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> but you, so you make this movie, it's 89. Like you weren't even planning on being an actor. And right, here you go, yeah. your first audition, you end up in a film uh because that was your first acting gig in a motion picture were you like all right i can get into this um yeah yeah but but then 
like my my weird setback was just that things were I don't know I got into like this relationship again and with a jealous guy and and so I quit the acting business in a, in right after that movie yeah you made a movie and you're like I'm done yeah okay yeah <laughs> I know crazy and then I was like no I miss it screw him I'm gonna be an actress now um so then you know I act actually like move back to LA. This has become a pattern for me. Um, and yeah, so the next movie that I got, you, I, I went back to that same acting class where I got that agent and I, and I then got a manager mm-hmm. and, um, I was auditioning for a lot of television and I got this little part on a TV show called freshman dorm. And, and, um, my scene was with, um, which I think is kind of funny, another Paul Verhoeven actor, um, who was in Starship Troopers, uh, Casper. Casper Van Dien, yeah. Yeah, so, you know, we were both very, like, maybe 21 at that time, or 20 or something. Mm -hmm. And, um, and then because of that manager, I ended up getting, and you're friends with Philippe Mora, um, I got, he cast me as the lead in Art Deco Detective. Right. And that movie really helped me, uh, my career, a lot. It just, you know, because I hadn't had a lead role yet. Right. And Philippe Mora has directed a number of horror films, The Howling 2. Uh, he, uh, you've worked Communion. with him. Communion. Communion. I love that movie he did. Uh, and he he and you have collaborated a number of times. Yeah. yeah. And he's in Astrid. Yes, stuff. Yeah, he, exactly. Yeah, so exactly. It, it's uh, it's kind of cyclical, Every everything. Yeah. Kind of. And then, so after Art Deco Detective, that's what year? Um, that was... I think in 93 mm-hmm. and then it came out in 94 and we went actually got to go to Cannes with it. And, um, I think it was, it was because of that film because, um, Joanna Ray, the casting director, she did mention that. Um, but because of that, I was called in for showgirls, which leads us to showgirls. Yeah. Uh, which, I mean, I know you've spoken about in a number of interviews and you've been talking about for, 23 years now almost is it is it that long that's i think it's 25 oh no i think 25 was like last year even that's right oh that's right because 95 uh wow yeah um yeah (laughs) (laughs) we're we're like wait let's take a break yeah 25 years (laughs) does it feel like it um no because honestly rena i think that you know you in a way, have been on a journey with Showgirls in a way that almost no one else attached to the film has, because you play a supporting part in the movie, but you seemingly recognized from the beginning the audience that it had. I've read interviews with you, and uh, you know, you you did end up crafting Showgirls too. You have a, you were one of the early adopters when people like Peaches Christ were doing live drag performances of Showgirls. You would go and participate. Mm-hmm. Um, so talk to me a little bit about getting cast in Showgirls and, and and a little bit about that journey because I'm sure at the beginning you never thought you'd be here talking about it. I'm I'm sure not. Oh no, I we actually did. I did. I, like to be honest, um, I. 
I didn't know that, you know, later Peaches would be playing Crystal. Right. <laughs> like, you know, when we were first making the movie, but I knew it was very special. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, well, yeah, so I, I was called in actually to play the role of Crystal. Interesting. Because my character in Art Deco is basically Crystal. And so I think that's why, you know, I wasn't at all the, you know, Penny character, the naive kind of ditzy blonde kind of vibe that they, you know, said. Right. But, um, and nothing to, nothing about blondes here. Right. <laughs> but, you know, that's like the character type that they, they like to do. But, um, yeah, so, so I had that whole attitude down and I had like three callbacks for crystal Mm -hmm. and then i had the dance audition too which i was thankfully i was able you know to do that and to do the dance because it was very difficult but i was used to marguerite's choreography uh, you know um but then it went on for a really long time and i remember there was like something like a six weeks um delay of them I was on hold right and I was waiting and waiting and um and plus when I first auditioned my my agent didn't tell me who the director was and then I they're like oh you have a call back now and I didn't even ask because that happens you know you probably know a lot of times right um you know you just go you just it's a job yeah and <clears throat> you want to work yeah you want to work and you just show up and you do the thing and um and so then after I read for Paul Verhoeven, <laughs> I called my agent. I was like, okay, because I didn't even want to think that because I didn't want to be nervous. Right. But I really loved, I loved his work. and But I didn't know what he looked like back then. Right. Um, well, and I before the basic internet ins- where we yeah, could just yeah. look people up, right? Yeah, you have to see it in magazines. So, but I love basic instinct. You know, I was just really... That was another influence. I just love Sharon Stone. It mm-hmm. just like, oh. And I think... When I did my um, Art Deco character, I kind of was influenced by Basic Instinct and Sharon Stone, right. and also um, Lauren Bacall in To Have and To Have Not. Um, just that kind of dry, but like really super confident, you know, approach. And um, but anyway, at the end of the day, they they said um, Rena's not old enough to be a washed up um, showgirl. <laughs> I mean, it's a compliment. I know. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's a compliment. So it was just like this weird But you compliment. wanted that part. Yeah, yeah, I wanted that part. And and so they said, we're going to give her another part because we really, you know, like my acting or whatever. Right. So, yeah, so they just gave me Penny. Now, before we get into the details of the making of the movie, because it seemed like it was a very intense shoot. Uh, mm-hmm. you have said in the past, I read an interview with you with regard to basic instinct that you think, um, as much as, you know, critics who have, have criticized showgirls for its camp factor, you, you've pointed out that you think that with the lens of time, basic instinct also very much reflects camp as well. Yeah. Yeah. And, and when I first saw basic instinct and it was in the theater, I remember, and oh, it was 
just this intense, serious drama, you know, and it was like a horror movie in a way. And that kind of suspense I was talking about before had that eerie feeling, the mood. Um, And then when I, yeah, I watched it later after 20 years or, you know, a few years ago, and it has turned so campy. It's turned into showgirls. And but when it came out, for some reason, people just missed that. Right. You know, but well, it's very, yeah. Do you remember when Basic Instinct came out, how uh, members of the LGBTQ community were protesting it because they thought it... No. Yes. Oh, wait, I kind of, yeah, actually, but no, I, like, yeah, in between. Yeah, yeah they, they thought that it was showcasing uh, the idea of, of Sharon Stone's character being a bisexual or lesbian serial killer. Oh, that's killer. right, yes. And, and so there were people um, protesting in San Francisco and trying to spoil it so people wouldn't go see it. And I, I just think it's funny because, you know, that movie protested at the time by our community is sort of embraced as a camp classic now. Oh, okay. It just shows that trajectory of, like, when a movie comes out doesn't always dictate where it goes. And who knows that yes. better than you? Yeah, with Showgirls. Right. Yeah, because um, all of us, you know, of course, I wasn't seeing dailies or, you know, we didn't really know. But we did. We thought we were really making a great film. Right. Like, we... No one was, maybe Paul Verhoeven, that's like the only thing, and he won't actually, or I guess he finally did an interview about it, so, but um, but we really thought we were just going to make something just really amazing, but shocking, but, you know, we're all like, just, uh, well, we thought it was going to be great, and because right. at the time, we also thought um, Basic Instinct was great, we didn't think of it like the over the topness right <laughs> you later look at you're like you know i mean i think they're both great and but i think you did make great. something great <laughs> yes but i think that maybe what you're saying is you didn't get the movie you were expecting at yeah, the time we we really thought um it would be more like something nowadays like these films that are nominated for oscars and like last year's oscars where they're you know a serious a serious film right. where that mood is, you know, you're dealing with people and and their lives and their whatever, what they want out of life, you know. And so um, we thought that that's, I think we are that serious about it, you know. So you're on set, you are building these expectations about the kind of movie you're making. Uh, you know that the trades are talking about it as potential Oscar bait. Um, and then the movie comes out. Mm-hmm. And I mean, we all know the story. It gets raked across the coals. Uh, they are very unkind to the film and to Elizabeth. Mm-hmm. Uh, what was that like from your perspective? Because it must have not felt good one thing for me was um i i then was filming striptease you did showgirls and striptease back to back yeah back to back so then i got that role and so i was in florida but once again i was working with marguerite derricks so marguerite says we are gonna literally fly out to the premiere in la Mm mm-hmm and do the premiere and then fly back that night. You know, Rena, you really, you really got to, you know, do this and come with us. Right. And I was like, oh, I'll be too exhausted. I can't do that. And I'm, you know, I have to shoot the next day or, you know, whatever. And 
And, you know, that six-hour flight, flight it's, yeah. it's really hard on you. So um, so I didn't go to the premiere, and I totally regret not going to that premiere. But um, then when Marguerite came back, she was like, Rena, it was, it was terrible. Oh, and she told me, she said she was sitting with Elizabeth and holding her hand, and Elizabeth was like, why are they laughing? Why are they? Why are they laughing at that? And so the whole audience in that that premiere, they are, were already laughing. Already, like that you know, like what we do at Peach's Shows, show. Yeah, <laughs> but that happened the first screening, and um, because because I didn't go, I gave my two tickets to my agent and my like my two agents that I had mm -hmm. at that time. I was with a really good agency at that time, and um. And then they even said something bad. They're like, well, Rena, you were really good in it, but the movie was just horrible. <laughs> so when did you see it for the first time? Um, oh, oh, yeah. And then the producer of Striptease rented the whole theater there. And so all the cast and you know crew, whoever wanted to show up, Demi Moore, she sat, you know, just right next to me there. And um, so we all watched the movie together. You watched Showgirls for the first time with Demi Moore. Yeah. With the, 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 <laughs> the cast of Striptease. Yeah, the director and the cast of Striptease. That's amazing. Yeah, it's just so weird, isn't it? And, and so we're all sitting there watching it. And I can't remember, remember what my actual personal feelings were about the movie, but I know that to me was very angry and she said Rena now I keep saying this because they're probably just saying this to me because I'm there right, <laughs> but, right, right. but she's like Rena you were the only good thing about that movie that movie is terrible and she like stormed out which I mean this is how I remember it because she was very offended I think the rape scene always just disturbs people and they you know and so then striptease had a big um meeting saying this is exactly what our film will not be which is really hard for you because you're in both movies and so that yeah, has, and, and marguerite yeah. too so you know both of us and, and her assistant who was she didn't have lines i don't think but she was one of the main dancers and she was also the assistant on striptease so like us three right um yeah and it was just it was just embarrassing. And then like the worst thing was um, my boyfriend at the time, he, you know, loves movies and a connoisseur of, you know, films. And so he went to the theater without me because I was in Florida at the time. Mm -hmm. And he goes, I watched it until your last scene. And then I just walked out. He goes, that was horrible. <laughs> And so that really, I think that broke us up. <laughs> well, I'm sure. I mean, it's so interesting because I do remember just like the the instant backlash. But I remember also seeing it for the first time thinking, this is amazing. And really? Not, yeah. And not in a tongue in cheek way. I have always maintained. And if you go back even and listen to interviews with other guests that I've had, probably when Peter was on or when Peaches Christ was on uh, or other people, when Showgirls comes up, because, you know, people love to have that uh, that moniker. It's so bad, it's good. And I think that's bullshit. I've always said that. Mm -hmm. I think it's so good, it's good. Because I think... I do too. I, th I really do. Yeah, because I think that Paul Verhoeven had a vision for what he was trying to do. 
And I think he executed it. And I think that, you know, just because you have certain expectations of what a movie should be, mm-hmm. not every movie is going to be that. Um, and, you know, I'm really glad to know that Elizabeth Berkeley is, st- is starting to come around and embrace it because there are people who genuinely... Not in a mocking way, but genuinely love Nomi Malone. Yeah, because definitely. of her strength. And yeah. uh, I don't know. I just always loved this movie. And I and you know you know we've known each other for a long time now. And I've always unapologetically uh, been banging the drum that this to me is is one of the greatest movies ever. And I'm I say that with no hyperbole. I've always said it uh, because it's satire. And it's commentary. Mm-hmm. I mean, you've got a Dutch, he's Dutch, right? Mm-hmm. A Dutch director showcasing the worst of what American can be in a city of sin. Everyone's over the top. Everyone's ill-behaved. The one good person gets punished for being good. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's what America looks like to the rest of the world. Yeah. And I think Showgirls showcases that in ways that maybe people at the time didn't want to deal with because I think they wanted yeah. to go and see something naughty so they could feel naughty. Yeah. But it's not about sex. It's about people. Oh, yeah, not at all. Yeah. And, and you know, I'm the whole thing now, I mean, this is just kind of an off-the-wall thought, but you know how the word now is um, narcissist or, you know, like the sociopath and yeah. the narcissistic um, personality right. disorder? And I think a lot of those characters there are you know have it's come into that and it's being revealed as that right you know what i mean just how they use each other how they manipulate each other yeah you're not going to give her my part are you <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah i was even doing my character yeah you know right yeah my character has those qualities as well but um so from, yeah from the movie being beaten up when did you start seeing the turning point that you realized as someone involved with the film and who liked the film from the beginning? When did you start realizing people were embracing it? I'm really trying to think exactly because, I mean, my my first answer would really be when I heard about through a friend that Peaches Christ, I didn't know Peaches at the time, but they said, Peaches Christ, you got to go up there, is doing a midnight movie of Showgirls. I was like, really? Oh my gosh! And, you know, <laughs> I want to. I want to go there. I was. I was really happy about that. And um, and I'm trying to think like if if there was any time before that because that was, I think, the year 1999 where I. She did heard. it fairly fairly early on, right after. That. She was one of the first to start doing midnight screenings within yeah. two or three years of of the movie coming out. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I, yeah, I I think, I don't think I heard anything good about it until, (laughs) until Peaches. So tell me, because you and I have both in different ways participated in Peaches Christ Midnight Mass. Mm -hmm. You go and you know, it's like a rock concert, those movies. Like, and now when they do it, like, you know, it used to be at the bridge, that 400 seat theater. Yeah. And that was, that was the first time I got to go. And now it's at the Castro, 1,400 seats. But tell me about that first time you go and this movie that, you know, kind of had a little bit of a stigma for you and you get to see this audience that's rocking out and screaming and cheering. Like, what was that like? Oh, it well, it was amazing and wonderful and, like, thrilling. <laughs> and the energy was just 
uh, it was this amazing energy that I could just feel it go with inside of me, you right. know, and just the celebration of this movie and, you know, the whole audience getting into this and right. doing the, um, when they, when she turns the music on and they do the stripper yeah. with the popcorn, <laughs> just everyone is going so wild and crazy and like everyone is just very free, you right. know? So because Peaches was an early adopter of the cult of showgirls, mm -hmm. uh, it sort of helped reveal to us and something that, uh, you know, we now know because of the internet that the movie really struck a chord right away with queer audiences and LGBTQ audiences. And um, you yourself are, are not gay, but you have been, you know, embraced by the community, a celebrated queer icon. And, uh, you know, I know that you've done a number of events with, with drag queens and queer people and things. So I kind of want, as someone who was inside the showgirls phenomenon, what do you think it is that draws people who feel like outsiders to the movie showgirls? Um... I don't know. It's <laughs> <laughs> <Just> honest. <laughs> like what? What draws what the you, what, queer what you, community? Yeah. What do you think that the appeal is? Like, just from your standpoint, what? Why? Why would you, as an audience member, be drawn to it? Um, the na the finger, the nails, really? <laughs> darling, and the makeup, and the production. The dancing, right. you know, those great dance numbers are just amazing to watch. Right. Um, in the Goddess show. You right. Know, the strip. I mean, Elizabeth's dance in the, the strip club, both both her dances are amazing, too. But, um, you know, it. the film is very intense. Right. Like, the visuals and the the acting and even like with the sound turned off um, <laughs> because oh, I went into Amoeba and um, the person working there, they're like, oh, we used to play showgirls all the time on the monitors, but just turn the sound off and just like have it on a loop. And he's like, it's, it was so entertaining. We just, you know, love just to look at it. But it's like that film delivers even without the sound off, you know? Right. So it's, it's just, just entertaining. You just, it, it, it's like, I guess you could say eye candy. I mean, I think it, it goes even beyond. I mean, in my opinion, I'm trying to just think of, you know, the good, like, why is it that everyone is drawn to that right. film? But um, it kind of, it goes even beyond the story, mm -hmm. you know? You think that it's just like, it's engaging on every level. Yeah. Yeah. So and, and I'm thinking like when I sometimes I watch it and because, you know, if I have um, a TV channel, a lot of times your showgirls is going to be on one of the channels. And you're like, you know, you can't help but watch it. And, and then I turn on. I'm like and I'm watching it. And with the aging of it, like you were saying before, I think it's becoming more and more like an after school special to me. I don't. I don't see it anymore as like that risque NC-17 okay, kind so of vibe. Tell me about that. Tell me about Showgirls, the after school special. Why do you, th <laughs> why do you think that? I don't know. Well, it just has something about it that is just almost like a family film, 
to me right now. I I was watching it the other day and it just I didn't see it as that scary erotic movie that they warned everyone that was coming out. Right. And that we were kind of already not brainwashed, but like we were already conditioned to go into this, you know, leave your inhibitions at the door, you know, right. because we we're going to go into um you know, the basic instinct world again with all these intense people, which, you know, it is, everyone is intense in it, of course. But, um, yeah, it just seems kind of like light, kind of lighthearted. And, and it's, I don't know, that's what I noticed. And I was like, wow, this is, this movie is really changing before my eyes after 25 years. So you've truly been on a journey with this movie. (laughs) Yeah. 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 And, uh, I have a feeling that you're going to keep journeying with it. I don't think the cult of showgirls is going to slow down anytime soon. No, I don't think so either. And, and I'll, I, you know, maybe you can cut this out, but, um, but yeah, I was telling you, I, I had this, like the last couple of years, those people that we were talking about that actually don't understand the film. Right. And, and it's cause I do understand the film and I mm-hmm. understand it on the, two different levels of the campy level and there's also people that they actually love they do think the movie is serious and they actually love it and they love the you know Nomi Malone character right um and they don't watch it in a way of you know laughing right they you know it's a yeah it really touches their heart and um I I went through this thing where some of those those people that really hate it they got to me and they started to try to convince me that this movie, I shouldn't be associated with it. <laughs> and I was like, oh my gosh. And I realized, I mean, it's such a part of my life. Of course. You know, and yeah. not only my life, like I have like so many of my closest friends and it's just, you know, yeah, it's a part of my life. So I, I kind of went through that time where basically not to feel sorry for myself but they were kind of shaming me that I was in showgirls and I even had this one person um tell me that they really don't like that movie (laughs) the other day and they were serious and I was like you know wow but anyway now like really even before like we I knew I was coming on your show um like a week ago because this got put together really quickly yeah um I am re totally re-embracing it right. even more so because yeah, those doubts that they got to me and started convincing, you know, convincing me like probably what happened a little bit to Elizabeth and why she distanced herself. I bet, you know, you don't know what people were actually saying, saying to, to her, her. you yeah. know what I mean? But, but, you know, I think that whether you like the movie or not, there's a jealousy factor there too, because how many people moved to Hollywood with the hope of being in a movie, let alone a movie with impact. Yes. For better or worse, however you choose to think about it, Showgirls is a cultural and touchstone. It is a fixed point in the pop culture zeitgeist. And that's something you will always be part of. Yes. And so people who try and shame you for that, whatever, what have they done? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, and I'm... I'm so grateful and I appreciate that and, and, you know, 
that movie that, I mean, I feel very much like, you know, I'm, I'm one of the filmmakers of Showgirls. We were all part of this thing, you know, right. and we all worked really hard. We worked harder than what our screen time even shows, shows you know yep. what I mean? We were in rehearsals for like five months of You dancing. wrote a song that was featured in the film? Oh, yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah, I got a song in the movie. Um, my credit is right under Prince with his little symbol. Which is amazing. <laughs> I know, yeah, so... Um, How could that yeah, not I'm, I'm be a special moment in time? Yeah. Yeah, I'm very, very proud of it. And I'm so grateful because those kind of films we know that they don't come along all the time. No. And, you know, maybe a lot of the, you know, the Oscar winners this year, you know how it goes. Like, they just disappear, these films. They just disappear, you know. Right. They don't do what Showgirls has done. Exactly. Well, from one cultural moment to another, from one cult classic to another, uh, you know, we've already touched upon striptease, so I want to jump ahead a little bit. You were in a film with one of my favorite, directed by one of my favorite filmmakers, David Lynch. Oh, yes. Uh, and that movie was Mulholland Drive. Yeah. Uh, you, first off, tell me about working with David Lynch, because I feel like he's a singular entity unto himself. Like, we've never had anyone on the show that's worked with him. Mm -hmm. What's it like to be directed by him? Well... He's very attentive, and he was really, really paying attention to everything I was doing. And because, you know, I'm sure everyone knows that the original Mulholland Drive was a pilot that right. we shot. And so I did have another scene that got cut out, and it was, you know, explained a lot, and it probably needed to be taken out because of, you know, those reasons. Right. But um, so in that scene... I'm standing there, we're at Pink's, and I decide to um, have my character be, you know, really kind of weird, and who knows which, you know, she could be on drugs, maybe, I don't know. Right. And so I'm, like, looking at at the the sky, and I'm looking around, and, and um, with those two guys in, in the scene with me, and, um, and then David, like, comes up after that taking, and goes, Rena, I love what you're doing. But don't look up at the sky, because if you do, I'm going to have to do a cutaway shot and then put something in the sky. I don't know what it would be. <laughs> you know? I like that that was his thought process. Yeah. And I was like, when he said that, I was thinking, oh, and I was kind of felt bad because mostly with all my work. And I mean, this is directors don't really say much to me. Like they, right. you know, they don't really direct me. They just go, okay, good. Let's do a little faster this time. But when he did that, I was like, oh shit, I fucked up. Oh, sorry. I didn't mean to. No, we, we oh, can we swear. Can yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh shit, I, I think fucked we, up. I think we have this moment with every guest where they're like, can we swear? You can. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So he, he was, you know, yeah, I was really paying attention. That was his thought process. And then I asked him, you know, cause I only had, I was only on the set for one day with mm -hmm. the, those scenes. It was a long day, but I asked him, I said, with this dialogue, um, what are they talking about? What exactly is um, in the package? And he looks at me and goes, I don't know. <laughs> I'm trying to figure that out. 
said when he said that, I wasn't really familiar. I wasn't actually that familiar with him back then. Right. Because that was, you know, that was, I think, 1999 or something. So right. I was still like in that, you know. And um, yeah, but I just, I, I was thinking, how could you not know what your script is about? <laughs> <laughs> well, now I know. Now That's you know. That's how it works. You told me a story once uh, about while you were shooting Mulholland Drive about uh, quitting smoking and David Lynch's reaction to that. Could you talk about that? Yeah. So, um, so David was you know, sitting in his director's chair and they were doing a lot of resetting and we had big cranes and all this kind of stuff going on for that pink stuff scenes there. And, um, and he was smoking, you know, he's chain smoking and I was standing there talking to him and I said, well, you know, um, I really wanted to get into this character. So I smoke, but I quit smoking. So when I ask for the cigarette, I'll really, really want it. Right. And he goes, Wow, that's great. How how long did you quit smoking for? I said, for a week. And he goes, that's too long. What are you, crazy? <laughs> so David Lynch Because I really did that because I was a smoker at the time, actually. Oh, wow. So I, yeah. So then I, you know, I wasn't even quitting. I quit smoking because that character... <laughs> needed a cigarette so you went method and we just yes. learned in this story that david lynch is not supportive of method acting <laughs> no, especially thought, when nicotine is involved yeah he laughed <laughs> he thought that was funny and yeah he thought i went over the over the top with that one well i wanted to use your work in mulholland drive uh and working with david lynch as sort of a pivot point because earlier we started this whole conversation with discussion of uh your most recent film astrid self-portrait uh but you as a filmmaker, uh, and I mentioned this earlier, I feel like your work tends to have more in common with works like Mulholland Drive or Inland Empire than some of the films that you are known for. And as a filmmaker, you made Trasherella, which I know was inspired by B-movies and horror movies. Uh, and then you uh, ambitiously took on Showgirls 2, which I is, think is wild. And, you know, I love that you did that. But even Showgirls 2, like, you can see you leaning into the world of the experimental. And uh, so talk to me a little bit about the transition of Rena the actor to Rena the filmmaker. And um, what movies influence you as as a director? Um, Yeah, still, um, you know, I like the very independent type of films that you know have more of that gritty and kind of the imperfection you know of of that moment to moment kind of thing and um right. you know I, i'll even still say trash was you know a huge influence right. still and then i you know i watched some of the the european films I'm really bad with names, actually. Like, I can't recall, <laughs> recall like, all the films that I watched. But, um, but like, the movie Wanda, for instance, that simplicity um, that's in that movie. Do you know Wanda? I don't. Yeah. Oh, um, Barbara, I might say this, Barbara Loden. And um, she, that was the one film that she made. And um, it's just very like simple setups and um it was with oh like the actor's studio and i have to anyway um 
so um yeah just a lot of a lot of the european films from the 60s mm-hmm. and when i was when i was making showgirls 2 i what even though yeah you're right about it went into those experimental areas but um I was very influenced by Valley of the Dolls. I can see that. Yeah, and yeah, and that movie isn't. That's more. I mean, there is something about it that's a little bit experimental, I think, but it's still very tight, right. you know. But it's it has like a, a different format in a way. But um, yeah, so I was I was very in, influenced by that film, and I'd watch it over and over, and I just love the kind of melodramatic qualities but still very honest you know and I think like my future films that I make I'm going to I'm going to keep my same style but um even get a little bit further away from maybe the dark comedy that I do and just have it be a little bit more honest and dramatic but if if there is that quirkiness that comes up then you know totally embrace that sure you know so yeah that's yeah uh i do have to ask how did you arrive at the decision that you wanted to do showgirls too did you just like is it what we talked about it's just been so much part of your life you might as well well no there's actually a story behind it and um oh this is another bragging story (laughs) (laughs) So when I did the ADR for Showgirls and um and they they finished that movie. I mean, we shot it for a long time and the pre-production went on for a long time, but I was surprised like within a year that movie was edited. Wow. You know, and I was in the ADR and um Paul Verhoeven he said, "I love the character Penny." And we're going to make a sequel, and it's going to be all about Penny. Would you like that? Do you want to do it? Of course you're going to say yes. And I was like, oh, my gosh, yes, yes, this is amazing. So I call my agent, and I tell them this, you know, and um, and I really, I believed him. Right. <laughs> so, um, and then, you know, there are those stories that they were actually talking about a sequel, but then that was before the movie came out. Right. And then they took all that to heart, which I wish they wouldn't have. But right. um, And so then, you know, they didn't do the sequel. I don't know if he was just saying that to be nice, probably, but I believed him. So, <laughs> so um, yeah, I just kept waiting and waiting for him to make the sequel. And, and then... Um, I, I thought, um, it's now or never, darling. (laughs) (laughs) It's now or never, darling. You know, I think that's the line. Um, so yeah, so then I just, I said, I got to do it. And, and for a long time I was, um, I wasn't sure about the feel of the story and what it was going to be. And, you know, cause then I, I was realizing I would have to make the movie and I did send him the script and I contacted him and I talked to him and you contacted MGM as well yes oh yeah, yeah. but with Paul Verhoeven like I I still wanted him to direct it right I didn't think I was you know going to end up doing what I did right but um but then you know he said he said you know good luck with it like he did you know with Lottie and the new showgirls documentary, documentary yeah. you know he's very you know gives 
he's very encouraging, you know. Um, so he's like, yeah, good luck with it. It's just not my cup of tea. I will never want to, you know, be, as be <laughs> associated or whatever he said. Yeah, to go back into that. He said it was too painful for him. Like he said that. And um, so, yeah, so then I went, it took me a long time to, um, yeah, contact MGM. I contacted um, the Canal Plus because um, they had something to do with it. I contacted lawyers that represent the, like, the executive producers and the different people, you know. And basically, I, at the end of the day, I got clearance, you know, and I, I couldn't get the rights. Right. Because um, I think, I mean, not only that I, I, I didn't have probably the money, money. for it, yep. but at the same time, like, it was kind of like nobody really knew at this point who the actual right holders are. It's just been sold around so many different times. And right. So anyway, everyone just said, yeah, go ahead and do it. We're not making a Showgirls 2. You know, they know they know that I was in it and we've all been through a lot. Right. You know, I, luckily I went through a lot of good things because of it, but they went through, you know, maybe more like. Right. Just hardship. What I think is interesting, and this is why I wanted to bring it up, is because I think that you occupy a very interesting place in film history and that you were able to make the sequel to a film that you starred in with the blessing of the studio without ever actually acquiring the rights, which is extremely unique and probably will never happen again <laughs> in the history of cinema. I know. Because it's like, basically, as the story goes, MGM was kind of like, well, we don't know. Go for it. Yeah. And that's amazing. Like that, yeah. you know, when a major studio looks at an indie filmmaker, whether you had been in Showgirls or not, and just was like, yeah, sure. Yeah. I know. It was pretty amazing. And, uh, and I, I mean, I let them all know. And then even the executive producer, he said, you know, let me know if you need my help, though. <laughs> uh, well. Know? You know, and that's there's such an interest in the work that you do, uh, as and I mentioned this with Astrid, and it's true of Showgirls too, and it's true of Trasherella, is you're very interested in atmosphere, and you bring a little bit of element of horror to all of that. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, I, I think that Showgirls, in addition to your work, would be very interesting to the listeners on the show, as well as Mulholland Drive. Who doesn't love Mulholland Drive? Um, and as we're winding down our time here, I do have to ask because uh, it's just of interest to me and I think it will be of interest to horror fans. You were in a movie with uh, the Candyman where you were in Candyman 3. You yeah. did battle with, uh, with, with one of horror's great villains. Oh, yeah. Tell me about the experience of Candyman 3. Well, for one, when... I heard I was, I had an audition for Candyman 3. I was really excited because I I love Candyman. And then there was Candyman 2, which I also, I love that one as well. But um, I just love that movie Candyman. And when I first saw it, which again was, I forget when it came out, but it was definitely around the, this time that we're talking about, like a little after Showgirls came out. Right. And um. I was so scared and I, you know, looked in the mirror and I tried to say it five times, <laughs> you know, but then I was scared I didn't. And, um, yeah, I was just a huge fan. And I kind of had that feeling that it was another thing like, oh, if I could get this part, 
it's like I could be, um, you know, go into another iconic kind of film or, you know, film that I don't know. I just thought it it would be really cool on my resume and just to be part of that, you know. So. um, So, yeah. And then I got the part. But oh, but the thing was at the audition, they're like, are are you okay with being um, covered by bees? And so I thought, and at the time, that's when the reality shows started with all that extreme. Oh, like Fear Factor and stuff. And so I just kind of thought of that for a minute. I was like, you know, if they can be, you know, covered in worms and all that kind of stuff and cockroaches and, you know, I, I can be covered with bees. So. I thought of it like, you know, this is going to be a once in a lifetime experience. Right. Even though I had been attacked by yellow jackets before, and that was really horrible when I was a kid. So I did have the real experience, but yellow jackets, they're kind of right. different. They just bite. But it's a horror movie, so you can draw on that fear for your performance. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so then the the day that we shot that scene, so they they put on these little like well it's like an oil and I guess you know they called it pheromones and then they get a they shovel um, baby bees on me and so they have no stingers they say and um, (laughs) so they're shoveling and they had like some of the what's it called the prosthetic you know things like on my face just to make them even more clumpy but right um, so I had these baby bees and then they had the um the animal rights protectors there so none of the bees would get hurt too and but then from outside like a queen bee or something got into this the sound stage and so then I had to sit there for like 10 minutes with vibrating bees crawling all over me and they originally wanted me completely naked but I was like can I please keep my g-string on please <laughs> You know, it's the least you could ask. Yeah, can I please? They're like, okay. And, uh, and yeah, so then we finally, like, do the scene over and over and over and over. And then they go to, like, take the bees off of me. Well, it has to be done from a very nice vacuum. And um, somehow it got, the vacuum was lost. And it got left on some other soundstage like way down over there somewhere so then I sat there for you know what felt like a really really long time and waiting for the the vacuum to come and um yeah so it was was like really intense like I don't know if many people I'm sure there are some but not many people get to experience something like that yeah that's wild so what's that feel like having bees like it's just like a vibrating feeling and like a sticky sticky little feet feeling that like kind of like suck up your skin while they crawl (laughs) this is the filth portion of dead for filth um wow well you have certainly uh gone to some lengths for your art from being covered in bees to filming yourself to uh to quitting smoking for for one of the best yeah for the best quaffed director in town um Tell me, what have you seen recently that you're enjoying? What movies have you watched that you like? Oh, 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 oh. Um, let's see. Well, I really liked 
the Florida Project. Yeah, it was great. Yeah, and see, that has that kind of atmospheric kind of thing, too. I like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I watched that one. I want to I see The Shape of Water. I want to see that. I haven't seen it yet. I think you'll like it. Yeah. Yeah, it's definitely a mood piece, for sure. Yeah, I heard it's very disturbing, is what I heard. I, I actually think it's kind of sweet, but I'm also oh, really? not... It, like, I, I don't even yeah, know. I'm a deranged person, though, so what I think is sweet and what other people think are sweet is very different. Uh... I mean, you know this by now. Um, so before we head out, Rena, why don't you tell me what you're working on next? What's coming up? I have a new film festival that I am the creator of. It's called Concrete Dream Film Festival. And this is the first year we have. It's going to be um, June 9th. And it's for experimental avant-garde and art house films. So I have been watching all these amazing submissions just I am blown away I am also so honored that because I feel kind of like wow this amazing artist submitted their film to a film festival that I created right so you know it's just it's an amazing feeling and I'm really loving this so um I've been spending a lot of time watching you know many many films (laughs) and does watching those help inspire you in your own work oh yeah yeah definitely i love that you're such a champion of experimental films because i think in the era of of the internet and things we've sort of lost the world of experimental films in in a larger sense Mm -hmm. they exist out there but we need people out there championing them and i'm so glad that you are and this film festival sounds like a great thank you opportunity for people to do so yes june 9th uh is my mom and dad's anniversary so perfect happy 45th anita and rich (laughs) um so uh where can people find you um you know i am mostly on instagram these days Okay. That's where I'm at. And it's just at Rena Riffle Wonderful. on Instagram. So yeah, if, you know, I'm, I'm posting, I'm going to post a picture of Michael and I on Instagram right now. Excellent. So, um, yeah. Well, <laughs> Rena, thank you so much for coming. Uh, oh, I'm so you. glad to talk about all manner of things that we, we discuss from, from your work to your, to your just amazingness. Oh, thank you, Michael. Please, out there in the world, uh, check out Rena's films, uh, whether she's acted in it, starred in it, uh, written it, produced it, directed it. She is a renaissance woman of many, many talents, and I'm grateful that she was able to join me here today. Thank you so much. Thank you. (laughs) This has been Dead for Filth. I'm Michael Verratti, yours always in glam and gore. Good night and good luck. Dead for Filth has been a Reverie Studios production. The show is executive produced by Aaliyah J. Daniels. Produced by me, Michael Verratti, Dominic Segetti, and Drew Phillips. The sound engineers for this episode were Dominic Segetti and Drew Phillips. Music by My Own Cubic Stone. Edited by Drew Phillips.